0: Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org.
1: Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Just a little
0: itty-bitty one. This is the Nauvoo period. And we're finally arriving in what used to be known as Commerce, Illinois, which will be claimed by the saints as the headquarters of the church and renamed Nauvoo, which in Hebrew means city beautiful. Now, there's an entire gap here that we jump from 1838 at the end of the Mormon War, where we just were reading the letter from Liberty Jail. It is now 1841. So we've had a considerable time period pass before the Lord reveals anything in section 124. So I know what you're asking. What happened to Joseph? How did he get out of jail?
1: Great question, Bryce. The short story is Joseph actually escaped from custody while he's being transported for trial. But he and other prisoners were actually allowed and even encouraged to escape by their guards. So here's the story. By early April of 1839, the prisoners had learned that they would be transferred to Davies County for a long-awaited trial. And so Joseph and the other prisoners leave Liberty Jail under a 15-man guard. And then two days later, uh, the prisoners get to Gallatin. And then on April 10th, a grand jury met and it returned indictments for arson, riot, burglary, and treason, and also receiving stolen goods. Judge Thomas Birch then agrees to change the venue to Boone County, and it's then that the prisoners are set off for Columbia in a two-horse wagon with a guy by the name of Sheriff William Morgan of Davies County. Now, at the time, there's another man, and his name is William as well. His name is William Bowman, and these two Williams, William Morgan and William Bowman, are the guys that are in charge of transferring the prisoners. And so while they're traveling east through Cheriton County, the prisoners escape. And were they allowed to escape? They
0: escape on their own, or was it, oh, the door's open, wink, 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 we're going to go in and to this pub. Yeah, That's the question. That's the question.
1: So I want to just backtrack a little bit and talk about this release. William Bowman was actually the first sheriff of Davies County, and... William's cabin that he is living in at the time previously belonged to Lyman White, a member of the church. Following the surrender after the Mormon War, Bowman laid claim to White's property. Now, Lyman White's one of the prisoners. And I don't know if this plays a role, but I'm assuming, this is just me, but if I take over another man's property and now I'm in charge of guarding the prophet and there's this pressure to let him loose, I see that as a potential motive for him letting him go. But to make a long story short, on Tuesday, April 16th, the guard and the prisoners stopped for a night at a place near Yellow Creek in Sheridan County. Sheriff Morgan, he tells Lyman White that he wishes that he was at home. And then he adds, by darn... He swears, but I'm not going to swear. He says, by darn, I shall not go much further. Hiram Smith then testifies that Morgan told them that the judge, Judge Birch, instructed both Bowman and Morgan to never carry the prisoners to Boone County. So we're back to this he said, she said. But you can see Judge Birch giving that order. We just want it to go away. And then the guards are going to be the ones that are going to let them go. And then we're going to deal with the backlash later. So Hiram Smith reports this. He says, quote, they went to bed that night and were soon asleep. Shortly afterwards, Sheriff Morgan told us, I will take a good drink of grog and go to bed and you may do as you please. He and another guard then provided them with two horses and helped them, the prisoners, load the animals with their belongings. That's Hiram Smith's account. I'm going to side with Hiram on this and I'm going to say, I think Hiram's telling us the truth. And to me, it just makes sense also politically because some of the Missourians were growing uncomfortable with the governor's extermination order and they just wanted to drop the whole matter and simply just be done with it. They were embarrassed by the whole debacle with the Mormon war. And so there was some political pressure on the powers that be in Missouri to just make the whole thing go away. I certainly see it politically that the judge probably receiving orders from higher up. I don't know. I don't have the sources. I don't know where they are, if they exist. But I could see the judge getting pressure from above. Hey, let's make this
0: go away. Which suggests that a lot of people involved kind of knew that the charge of treason is not going to stick. Joseph is not going to be convicted of treason. So now what do we do? Because we've got this embarrassing situation and there's growing public content to say, no, let's just make this all go away. You're right. Can we even
1: get a conviction? And so this is according to uh, historian Richard Bushman. He says, the prisoners had suspected that they were an embarrassment to the state because the vigilante action and Boggs extermination order would cause a scandal if widely publicized. But at the same time, the prisoners also believed that the Missouri mob wanted to lynch them. Whatever the outcome of the trial, that was a big concern that they had. And so considering themselves prisoners of war in a hostile country, Joseph Smith and his brethren attempted to escape before. And this time, in April of 1839, they're going to succeed. And these five prisoners waste no time getting out of there. I mean, they just make a beeline for Illinois and Hiram Smith writes, he says, I jumped into the mud, because there's only two horses, so they're kind of having to share, and they're walking for miles and miles, and so Hiram Smith says, I jumped into the mud, and then I put on my boots without working them on, and when I got to the water after walking for 15 miles of prairie, he says, my boots were full of blood, and so you can imagine their heart pumping, they're, they're being freed, they're going to Illinois, they're going to see their families, and they're going as fast as they can. Now, on the side of Morgan and Bowman, when they get back home to Gallatin, the citizens are not happy. And they accuse Morgan and Bowman of aiding and abetting the prisoners, and then they single out Bowman. And they tie him to a steel rail and drag him through the streets, and it killed him. Bowman's not the guy under trial, and they killed him. And so I certainly see, if that's how they're gonna treat Bowman. You see the venom, I mean, they want blood. Yeah. And I read the way the citizens of Gallatin treated Morgan and Bowman as indicative of what they would have done had Joseph and Hiram and Lyman White been acquitted.
0: Right. If a court of law says no, there's no legal reason, there's no crime that they've committed according to the law, the citizens would not have been satisfied with that and would have taken justice into their own hands as per what they do to these guards. That's totally my take. And so
1: on July 6, 1839, Sheriff William Morgan signs a letter that those guys escaped and they did it without any negligence of myself. He basically says, look, I had nothing to do with this. And his statement, according to historians, contradicts the evidence and he likely never had the intention of delivering Joseph Smith and his companions to the Columbia, Missouri court. Uh, Not only that, but he allowed them to escape, and he did, in fact, aid them in their efforts. And so with this, his reputation is tarnished, and he leaves the county a short time later. So that's the story of William Morgan and his association with Joseph Smith and the other prisoners that escaped from Liberty Jail. And what's ironic is, if you remember when we talked about when the cornerstones are laid in Far West for the temple, Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve are coming to Missouri At about the same time, Joseph Smith and Lyman White and Hiram Smith are headed up to Nauvoo. They're like passing in the night at the same time. So when Joseph arrives, and this is Huntington's testimony, he says when he saw Joseph that he looked, quote, pale and haggard. And I can only imagine after being in prison for these many months in the horrible conditions of Liberty Jail, how Joseph must have felt. So that's essentially the story of how Joseph gets back into
0: what's now called Nauvoo, but earlier was called commerce. And it certainly wasn't the city beautiful that it is today. It was a swamp. And I think they got it cheap for a reason, but they're going to turn this place into a beautiful city. So Joseph comes out of prison, and now his focus is on beautifying this plot of land to make it habitable and a beautiful place. That is such a symbol of the work of Zion in our day. We are to take the swamps of life, the commerce Illinois of life, and turn them into the city beautiful Nauvoo's. And we do that personally in our own personal lives. We do that in our communities. And so that's where Joseph's going to spend a lot of his time is focused on how do we beautify the city and make it a beautiful place. And they do. It really became the city beautiful.
1: We have in the show notes a picture of how they platted it out. And you can see the order. It's this peninsula jutting out into the Mississippi, and they're trying to make all the streets these perfect lines. And you can just see how they're working to establish order. Anyway, it's, it's a beautiful thing, Bryce, like how you mentioned how they get there and it's a swamp and they drain it and they make it habitable. And by the way, I love how you talk about that's a metaphor for a life. So that's when they arrive and Doctrine and Covenants 124 was received nearly two years after Joseph and his companions escaped from Liberty Jail. The context to this revelation is unknown but it was received just a few days after the state of Illinois passed an act to officially incorporate the city of Nauvoo. Joseph and his companions are going to work very hard to make Nauvoo a place where the saints can have more safety, much more than they had in Missouri. And so with that in mind, in the idea that the city has just been incorporated, this revelation is going to affirm really important aspects of the gathering, the centrality of the temple, It's going to include directions for the reorganizing of many of the quorums of the church. And this revelation is going to talk about proxy baptisms for the dead, something that was never discussed in Kirtland or Missouri at a funeral of a man by the name of Seymour Brunson. Joseph Smith is going to explain 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and the early Christian practice of baptism for the dead.
0: But it begins with a very tender mercy for both us and for Joseph Smith. You can imagine after spending six months in prison, Joseph may very well be questioning, have I done any good? Have I been the prophet the Lord wanted me to be? Have I lived up to my potential? And the very first verse of section 124 begins with, Thus saith the Lord God unto my servant Joseph Smith. Notice it's not unto you. I think he's speaking to all of us. I am speaking unto my servant, Joseph Smith, that with Missouri behind us, with Kirtland and the Safety Society behind us, the Lord says, I am well pleased with your offering and acknowledgments which you have made. Joseph has not fallen from grace. He is still the Lord's prophet. And then he says, for unto this end have I raised you up that I might show forth my wisdom through the weak things of the earth. I think the Lord is saying, Joseph, I handpicked you because you're not the strongest and you're not the most eloquent. And you don't have all of the qualities that the world would assume a prophet is going to have. Joseph was a simple man. And he is doing a profound work. And the Lord says, and that's on purpose. I did that on purpose. So all of you who are criticizing Joseph, even today in 2021, all of you who are criticizing Joseph because he was a man, a human, and flawed, and had weaknesses, you need to understand I did that on purpose. I did that on purpose. I called Joseph to do those very things because of his weakness. And if you're looking for perfection, you're not going to necessarily find it in Joseph. Joseph was, as the Lord calls him, one of the weak things of the earth. And that was on purpose. And I think what the Lord is saying is, Joseph, you're the very guy I wanted to do this. And with all that's happened, the Kirtland Safety Society has got to be weighing heavy on Joseph's mind. And whatever happened in Missouri that led to his imprisonment has got to be weighing heavily on his mind. And the Lord says, nope, all of that was because Joseph is the person I chose. And I think everyone needs to search their hearts today and ask, what is it that I expect in a prophet? What do I expect a prophet to do? And I need to check my heart to recognize that perhaps my expectations of what prophets are and do is different than what the Lord is intending to do. I think verse one of section 124 must have brought Joseph Smith some tremendous comfort. The Lord says in verse two, your prayers are acceptable. Joseph, I love you. I'm still with you. You're still my guy. Now, Brush off the dust and get back up on top. It's exactly what the Lord said to Oliver Granger. When he fails, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred to me than his increase. With that being said, the Lord now says, okay, Joseph, get back to work. And the first thing I'm calling on you to do in section 124 is make a solemn declaration, a proclamation to kings the Honorable President-elect, high-minded governors, and every nation scattered abroad. And so this now becomes proclamation number one. The First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have now made seven proclamations. And this is the first one. This is the Lord calling for the very first proclamation. Now, the proclamation on the family will be proclamation number six. And then in April of 2020, when the first presidency issued the proclamation on the restoration, will now be proclamation number seven. But I just want to pause just briefly and talk about the significance of these proclamations. We believe in prophets, seers, and revelators who see the enemy coming when he's a far distance off, when he's far off. And their job is to blow the horn and warn. The Lord said through Ezekiel, If the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So watchmen are supposed to blow the horn when the enemy comes. Now, I would imagine the blowing of the horn is in proportion to the enemy that they see coming. A small enemy would cause the watchman to blow the horn in a small way, but a massive enemy would probably cause the watchman to blow at the top of his lungs. So if you were a modern-day prophet, seer, and revelator, and you saw a massive enemy coming, what would you do now to speak in general conference is certainly the blowing of a horn, but is there a louder voice than a conference talk? I would suggest that when 15 prophets, seers and revelators put their signature on a proclamation, it is because they see a massive enemy coming And they are blowing their horn as loud as they can. What then does it suggest if they wrote a proclamation on the disintegration of the family? What then does that suggest is the biggest enemy coming? It's the disintegration of the family. I think we ought to listen intently to any proclamation that is given. Now, some of these proclamations, as you can see, are given to the world to tell them what the Lord is doing in our day. I think that's the essence of the seventh proclamation on the restoration. We need the world to know that God has restored his truth on earth, and we're gonna yell that as loud as we can, because for you, not knowing that is the biggest danger. But that proclamation on the family was not just for the world. That one has been incorporated into curriculum. At the institute level and within church schools, religions department, there is a required class that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve are asking every young single adult to take based solely on the proclamation, which means the proclamation on the family was not just a declaration for the world. It was a declaration to the church. We need to listen because the biggest enemy coming for you is the disintegration of your family. And the answers are in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just in the proclamation, but the answers are in the fullness of the gospel. So here in Nauvoo, when we begin to blow the horn and send proclamations to the world, I think the Latter-day Saints need to pause and really understand what that means. So back to section 124, the Lord calls for a proclamation to be sent out to the kings, the governors, to everyone. We will put a link in our show notes to the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, which contains the first five proclamations and a little bit of history to it. Um, I think all of you are familiar with the proclamation on the family, and you should be familiar with the proclamation made in the April 2020 conference on the restoration. But those are the seven proclamations that we've made. Now, in calling for this first proclamation, the Lord says in verse 4, it should be written in the spirit of meekness and by the power of the Holy Ghost. So write it under inspiration. And then he says in verse 6, for I am about to call upon them, meaning the nations of the earth, to give heed to the light and glory of Zion. For the set time has come to favor her. That's significant. Israel, modern Israel, restored Israel. It was a vulnerable infant in the days of Missouri and Kirtland. But Israel is starting to grow up. Joseph Smith will later say, speaking of Jesus when he's 12 years old, when still a boy, he had all the intelligence necessary to enable him to rule and govern the kingdom of the Jews and could reason with the wisest and most profound doctors of law and divinity, and make their theories and practice to appear like folly compared with the wisdom he possessed. But he was a boy only and lacked physical strength even to defend his own person and was subject to cold, to hunger, and to death. Now he makes the application. So it is with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have the revelations of Jesus, and the knowledge within us is sufficient to organize a righteous government upon the earth and to give universal peace to mankind if they would receive it. But we lack the physical strength, as did our Savior when a child, to defend our own principles. And we have of a necessity to be afflicted, persecuted, and smitten, and to bear it patiently until Jacob is of age, and then he will take care of himself. Zion is starting to take care of Zion, and the set time has come to favor her. And if you look at the church today, it is not a vulnerable infant that, like in the days of Missouri, was beaten up, Now, there are plenty of critics, and there are those who are opposed to the church's growth today, but Jacob is starting to take care of Jacob. Verse 7, call ye therefore upon them with loud proclamation and with your testimony, fearing them not, for they, again, the antecedent to they is the nations of the earth, they are as grass and all their glory as the flower thereof, which soon falleth. Let the nations know, and hence the proclamation goes out.
1: I really like verse 11 of section 124, where it says, Awake, O kings of the earth. Come ye, O come ye with your gold and your silver to the help of my people, to the house of the daughters of Zion. And I like it because it kind of reminds me of those sections where the Lord has this global approach To bringing and building Zion. If you remember where the Lord talks about, go to the people that live in the Western countries, you know, the sons of Lehi, the Native Americans, go bring them into the fold. Even though we were prohibited from doing so, the vision remains. The Lord looks upon all of the children of men with a fatherly and paternal regard and his arms are outstretched to all of them. And so even though politically and cultural biases prevented it from happening, I really see this as the Lord saying, despite these things, I invite you to come and do this. And I also understand, you know, the Kings of the earth aren't reading verse 11 and saying, Oh, I'm going to go help these guys build a temple. But when the books are closed at the end of day, cosmically, when everything is brought forth and we kind of are going to see some of this stuff in section 128 with the book of life, when the books are opened, no one will accuse God of not giving the invitation. There's a line in the preach my gospel. It's probably my favorite line in there where it says your success as a missionary is your commitment to serving the savior and inviting people to come unto Christ. And I think that, to me, is so important. It's not how many people you baptize, it's your commitment to the Savior and inviting them to come unto Christ. That is essentially where God says, I honor your agency. So I really, I really like verse 11, where the Lord's trying to bring everyone in.
0: And he's going to come right back to this idea of send word out to the nations and tell them what we're doing and invite them to participate. But before he does that, he now turns his attention to some of the individual members of the church and specifically some who have passed away and are now gone and who have made tremendous contributions to the kingdom. So I love that the Lord goes universal to the whole planet. And yet to a small little group of saints and acknowledges the sacrifice that they made. Yeah. In verse 19, the Lord talks about those
1: that have fallen. And it says, when he shall finish his work, I may receive him unto myself, even as I did David Patton, who is with me at this time, and my servant Edward Partridge, and also my aged servant Joseph Smith Sr., who sitteth with Abraham at his right hand, and blessed and holy is he, for he is mine. So the previous verse, the Lord is speaking to Lyman White, but then in verse 19, the Lord makes reference to these individuals that have died. They were very important to Joseph, and I really do appreciate that the Lord speaks about them, their sacrifice, and the Lord honoring them. And Edward Partridge dies young, in my opinion, in Nauvoo at the age of 46, and he is imprisoned at the conclusion of the Mormon War, and he spends about a month in prison in Richmond with 52 other members of the church, and at the time, his family has to flee. So his family goes north, and when he's finally freed, he comes to the area of Nauvoo, and they don't have a home. And so many people that live there were draining the swamp, and it's really not the most healthy circumstance. And his family is in a tent for about a year. And after about a year, he moved his family to the upper stone house where several other families lived, including Hiram Smith and Robert Thompson. And in the upper floor of this stone house, it didn't have a ton of room. And so Edward is working himself to the bone, trying to build a house for his family. And his daughter says, even though he was sick with chills and fever, he didn't have time to be sick. And so during the course of this experience, one of his daughters passed away. She's 19 years old. My take on it is he's already sick. His 19-year-old daughter dies. That had to contribute to his downward slide. He dies at the age of 46. And as we've Discussed earlier, David Patton dies at the Battle of Crooked River. How old was Joseph Smith Sr. when he died? 69. So that kind of gives you some context of who these individuals were. And as I've studied Joseph Smith Sr.'s life, he was a great man, but he certainly, like all of us, had weaknesses. But as we go through this and navigate our life, I really see the Lord working with us where we're trying to stay on the path, we're doing what we can, and the Lord's mercy will bring us home and we just keep
0: getting up. And I think it's significant that the Lord calls them out because Edward Partridge and Joseph were at odds at times in the past. When Joseph was in Kirtland and Edward was in Missouri, there was some contention between them, both men trying to do their very best and proceeding to do what they thought was right for the kingdom, but kind of at odds with each other. And so neither Joseph nor his father nor Bishop Partridge have been perfect. And yet here we find the Lord, after they've passed away, honoring them, blessing them. They are with me, that Joseph Smith Sr. is sitting next to Abraham. He is blessed, and he's holy, and he is mine. And again, I think it's significant, especially with Bishop Partridge and some of the challenges that he was facing And now we find him in the bosom of Heavenly Father. And I think sometimes we
1: talk about the prison experience that Joseph had with the others that were there in Liberty, and we forget. No, there were a bunch of good Latter-day Saints held in Richmond for a period of time, and their families, typically their wives and their children, had to figure it out without help. Their voices need to be heard. And Bryce, that's one of the reasons why I really like saints, where it gets into the women's voices. And so we're, Bryce and I are doing like a big picture approach to section 124. But certainly when you start pulling the threads of history, you see the multifaceted aspect of the saints and their suffering and what they went through to build the kingdom. And to me, it just comes down to They had to have been feeling the Holy Ghost. Nobody is going to be doing these things if the spirit is not in this work, at least from my perspective, as I've experienced trying to live the gospel and swimming in the mess of history and all the secularism that our culture is dealing with. What keeps me going is that spirit that I feel when I take the sacrament or participate in things that bring me closer to the Savior. And I just think that's probably what pulled them through. I certainly would not want to be living in a swamp, in a tent for a year. And so what motivated a man like Edward Partridge to do this? It was his
0: faith in Christ. Which is fulfillment of Book of Mormon language, because in Alma 32, he talks about if you'll plant a seed, if you'll put the effort into planting a seed and then nourishing that seed as it grows into the tree of life inside of you, if you will pay the price of growing the tree, so you make the effort to grow a testimony, to stay faithful to Christ, And then someday that tree that you nourished will nourish you. The Book of Mormon says, because of your diligence and your faith and your patience in the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you. Behold, by and by you shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious which is sweet above all that is sweet, which is white above all that is white and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. There will come a point where that tree will feed you and nourish you. And I think that's what you're talking about, Mike, when we see these Latter-day Saints who went through such difficult periods of time, what were they feasting upon that got them through it? It was the fruit of the testimony that they grew that is now feeding them. And so we see these wonderful people who have survived the Missouri period and have come into Nauvoo, and the Lord is blessing them and pointing them out in such a wonderful section. Let's jump to the building of the temple, because once again, we've seen this pattern. Joseph got to Jackson County, Missouri, and the very first revelation in Jackson County called for a temple. And then the very next place the headquarters of the church went, so that was Missouri and Kirtland, and then the church headquarters moves to Far West. And one of the very first sections in Far West, section 115, the Lord calls for a temple. Now we're the very first section received in Nauvoo, and the Lord is calling for a temple. We will then go to Salt Lake, and not four days after they arrive in Salt Lake, Brigham Young walks out to survey the land, throws his cane into the ground, and says, here we will build a temple to our God. So everywhere we go, the Lord is asking us to build temples. Now, in President Nelson's recent conference talk in October of 2021, he talked about temples and said, this is why we gather. The very reason we gather is to build temples. And everywhere we can, we're going to build a temple. So here they are in Nauvoo, and the Lord calls for a building of the temple. And he says, let me tell you why. So in verse 25, he says, get everyone together. Gather so that we can build a temple. Verse 26, send you messengers everywhere. Tell the world to come with their gold and their silver and their precious stones and everyone who has knowledge of antiquities and everyone who has a craft and an artistry. Come, build a house. Why? End of verse 27, build a house to my name, for the Most High to dwell therein, for there is not a place found on earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you or which he hath taken away, even the fullness of the priesthood. He can't restore that in a chapel or in an upper room or in someone's home or even in a mountain. The Lord says later, speaking of the baptisms for the dead, he says in verse 30, this ordinance belongeth to my house. There are certain things that we do only in a temple. And that includes, let's be very clear in verse 28, the fullness of the priesthood. The only place we receive the fullness of the priesthood, both male and female, is in the temple. And the Lord is begging them to build a temple so that he can restore the fullness of the priesthood. You've got to feel the urgency the Lord has. And now he's saying, I really want to give you what's been lost. I want to give you the fullness of the priesthood. So build a temple and we're going to save the dead because that ordinance belongs in this house. So he says in verse 31, but I command you, all ye my saints to build a house unto me and I grant unto you a sufficient time to build a house unto me. And during this time, your baptism shall be acceptable unto me, meaning in the Mississippi River. It's okay if you use the river for baptisms for the dead temporarily, but as soon as the time period is over, that won't be acceptable. So verse 32, he says, but behold, at the end of this appointment, Your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me if you do not these things at the end of the appointment. You shall be rejected as a church with your dead. If you don't understand how significant this is, I will find another group of people to do it. That's how significant the ordinances of the temple are. And so here we sit in 2021 where so many temples are being made available, and the Lord still has that same urgency. Yes, we've built them, but are we utilizing them? Are we going? I want to share a thought from George Q. Cannon, who was Brigham Young's counselor. He says this in 1894, and I just don't think it's changed much. President Cannon said the following, quote, I believe that our endowments are too easily obtained. Men and women go to the temple who do not understand or value the precious blessings that are bestowed upon them. These blessings become so common that many people do not value them or know how to use them. When the prophet Joseph first communicated that the Lord had revealed to him the keys of the endowment, I can remember the great desire there was on every hand to understand something about them. When the prophet would speak about his desire to complete the temple in order that he might impart unto his fellow servants that which God had delivered to him, a thrill went through the congregation and a great desire for this filled their hearts." The people were moved with desire to complete the temple in order that they might receive these great blessings therein. They were valued beyond price. A man that could go in and get his endowments was looked upon as though he had received some extraordinary blessing, something akin to that which the angels received. How is it now? There is a complete indifference, it may be said, in relation to it. Young people go there stupid with no particular desire only to get married or go on a mission without realizing the character of the obligations that they take upon themselves or the covenants that they make and the promises involved in the taking of these covenants. The result is hundreds among us go to the house of the Lord and receive these blessings and come away without having any particular impression made upon them. I think that this is deplorable. When men have gifts and blessings bestowed upon them and they do not value them, they become a cause of condemnation rather than blessing. Now that's pretty harsh, but I wonder if there's a spirit of truth to it.
1: It's a great quote. And by the way, I do think That part of it is because we don't understand the context of where this is coming from, and we don't really see its implications. As a total Old Testament nerd, I see the temple. All the way back down into the earliest cultures associated with kingship, with the king and the queen, the new year rite, fertility, and God saying to the people, these are my witnesses. And in this dispensation, the Lord is opening that up to all of us. I don't take the position that everything in the Old Testament is what it is. The Bible has been edited. My reading of Lehi's testimony is that Lehi stands in contradistinction to the powers that be in the Jerusalem temple. And so when we read the story that only a select few got to officiate in the temple and that only one guy got to go into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, my position is that's because the Bible has been edited. Lehi is showing us the true way. And right out of the gate in the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon, Lehi is initiated into the mysteries. And then Nephi is. And then Joseph comes around and says, by the way, so can you. And so my take on the Bible is that it's a reflection of what used to be. And Joseph is cracking open the door to what is and what
0: really was. So back to this idea that For the time being, until the temple is built, you're going to use the river to do your baptisms for the dead in. That was a significant time in church history, Mike, right? Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So in August of 1840, Seymour Brunson dies. And at his funeral, Joseph Smith reveals the doctrine of baptism for the dead. Seymour Brunson was a valiant saint. He was a veteran of the War of 1812, and he served a mission in 1832. And in 1838, uh, he was physically attacked and captured by some mobbers, but he escaped. And one of the fun stories about Seymour Brunson was that he took his shoes off and he reversed them. He put his shoes on backwards and he was able to mislead his pursuers by lightly treading through the snow with his shoes on backwards. And so that's a great story. I mean, it shows you the ingenuity of his mind and his spirit as he's escaping these mobbers. This is kind of who he was. He was just a really great Latter-day Saint, but he only lived two years after he arrived in Illinois. And after calling his family together, blessing them and bidding them farewell, he died at the prophet's home at the age of 40, a very young age. And he was a man that loved the gospel. And so I could see the sweet association that Joseph had with him and how he was loved by those that knew him. And that at this funeral... Joseph reveals to the saints this practice of baptism for the dead, which clearly, when Joseph sees Alvin, his brother who was never baptized in the celestial kingdom, that had to be putting
0: questions in his mind as to how that could be. And that is one of the most revealing truths about God's character, that those who didn't have a chance here on earth, you don't run out of time to receive a blessing from God. That has resounded in my soul from the day I was able to understand the God behind the work for the dead is saying, no one runs out of time. No one is denied a blessing simply because they died before they could receive it. That the spirit world is a legitimate part of our mortal experience that those who don't do something here in life have an opportunity to do that in the spirit world. That truth should tell us who our heavenly father is and how he operates and how much he loves us. It's not too late. What kind of God is that? And what kind of people should we be? God believes in a continuation of the mortal trial period into the spirit world. And those of you who stress over a loved one who didn't receive a blessing before they died or hadn't made critical decisions before they died, we need to understand that Heavenly Father considers the spirit world a continuation of this mortal experience. And anyone who claims a blessing in the spirit world receives that blessing, even if they died before they could receive it. No wonder this was received with cheering from the saints when Joseph revealed it. Yeah, and
1: so the saints are performing baptisms for the dead in the Mississippi River. But this revelation establishes the idea that that is a temporary practice. You see, this revelation came on January 19th, 1841, and from that time until the October conference of 1841, the baptisms in the Mississippi River were accepted. But at the conference in October, the prophet announced that the time had come to discontinue that practice. So if you look at verse 33, there's this phrase, after you have had sufficient time, if you look in the footnote, the footnote is 33a, and it says October 3rd, 1841. So that is the deadline. That
0: is the time. Because, let's be clear, verse 30, this ordinance belongeth to my house. Yes. I'll allow a temporary, but this ordinance belongeth to my
1: house. So, though the temple wasn't finished in 1841, it had progressed far enough so that the basement of the temple could be enclosed, and in the basement, a font had been built and dedicated. So, by November of 1841, under the direction of the prophet, baptisms for the dead commenced in the house of the Lord. Now... The temple's not finished, but that part of the temple is finished. So Bryce, one thing I get out of this revelation is how the Lord meets us where we are. Like the saints don't have the temple built, but they really want to do these ordinances. And the Lord allows for some messiness to occur. You see, they weren't always writing down who was being baptized. And then later when we get to section 128, the Lord's going to say, no, there's a specific way that I want this to occur. We're going to record it and there's going to be witnesses. But at this time, I really see the Lord meeting them where they are. And I think that's a principle that really applies in so
0: many instances. It's that combination on the side of the Salt Lake Temple, there are two hands grasping each other. It's man holding God and God holding man, and we are the imperfect ones, and he tolerates that imperfectness because we're holding hands, and so I just love that imagery of there is this sweet spot where the divine meets the imperfect, where immortal meets mortal, and there's a fuzziness in there where the Lord says, look, it's okay that you're human. And that your human side is manifest here. I love that little coming together. And I love that symbol of those two hands grasping each other. It's heaven and the imperfect holding hands. That's the temple. It is the temple. Now, I want to go back to something Elder Bednar said about the temple. It is as dangerous to not talk appropriately about the temple as it is to talk inappropriately about the temple. Far too many endowed members of the church don't feel like they can say anything about the temple. Therefore, children are growing up with no knowledge of the temple, nor an appreciation for it. We need to appropriately talk about the temple more often. So Elder Bednar gives two guidelines. He says, guideline number one, because we love the Lord, we should always speak about his holy house with reverence. We should not disclose or describe the special symbols associated with the covenants we receive in sacred temple ceremonies. Neither should we discuss the holy information that we specifically promise in the temple not to reveal. So I would invite you to go back to the temple and pay particular attention to everything that you are asked not to reveal. But then guideline number two from Elder Bednar, the temple is the house of the Lord. Everything in the temple points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We may, and I would even add, we should, we may discuss the basic purposes of and the doctrine and the principles associated with the temple ordinances and covenants. Now, let me remind you that safe ground is clearly anything in the Scriptures, So, notice what the Lord opens the door for appropriate conversations in our families in section 124. In verse 37, he says, How shall your washings be acceptable unto me, except ye perform them in a house which you have built to my name? For for this cause, I commanded Moses that he should build a tabernacle. That they should bear it in the wilderness and to build a house into the land in in the land of promise that those ordinances might be revealed which had been hid from before the foundation was. So, talk to your children about washings. And what's the doctrine of a washing? That we are asked to wash the world out of our eyes. And the way I do that is I don't look at things that are inappropriate to my covenants. I wash the world out of my eyes, that I should wash the world out of my thoughts. I should not think about things that are inappropriate to my covenants. I live within my covenants by washing the world out of my thoughts. I should wash the world out of my hands and not hold the things that are violations of my covenants. I should wash the world out of my feet and not go places that I should not be. Teach your children that that's what the temple is, that we're going to be taught to wash the world out. But then look at verse 39. Therefore, I say unto you that your anointings and your washings, and your baptisms for the dead. It is very clear and very appropriate, as taught in section 124, to teach your children about anointings, washings and anointings. And I would teach my children, what is the purpose of an anointing? There are many places in the scriptures I could point to an anointing. We anoint ourselves to receive a blessing. In other words, we mark ourselves to receive a blessing. I want to mark my mind to receive a blessing from the Lord by thinking about the things of the Lord. And I could have a tremendous conversation with my children about what an anointing looks like. A very fun conversation could come up in Alma chapter 2 and 3 where the Amlicites Anointed themselves with a red mark in the forehead to be known as Lamanites. And that there is an anointing to receive a blessing from God. And the Book of Mormon talks about an anointing to receive a blessing from the world. Tremendous discussions could happen in my family about what are anointings and why do we go into the temple to receive an anointing? You know, the King of England or the Queen of England.
1: Uh, They were anointed to become king when they were young, but then when they were older, they were anointed as king. And Joseph's going to be laying some of these ideas out with descendancy and lineage. We kind of talked about this with section 113, but Joseph kind of has this dual lineage citizenship as a son of Jesse and as a son of Ephraim. And in the Old Testament, there's this contention of who has the right to reign? Is it Ephraim? Is it Judah? And they kind of split in half into two kingdoms and one, their kings are from Judah and one, their kings are from Ephraim. And I see the Lord just beautifully weaving these ideas back together. And he he puts Joseph as the designee to be the one who is anointed. Joseph is sitting in this position of antiquity, teaching the ideas of kingship and what it means to be washed and anointed. And as a language nerd, Uh, The word baptism is not in the Old Testament and critics of the Book of Mormon say, how could the word baptism be in the Book of Mormon? How could a sixth century Jew even use that word? And I come back with, well, that's accommodation. Clearly the word they were using was the word for washing, but Joseph seeing that on the plates, however, the Book of Mormon was translated. The word that a 19th century Protestant would understand that was on that plate was baptism. That's, that's what's going on. And so did the ancient Jews do washings? You bet they did. Go to Qumran. They were doing this stuff all the time. And by the way, so were we. We did baptisms all the time to recovenant ourselves to God. But today we renew that covenant when we take the sacrament. But back to this,
0: there's a lot of stuff happening in verse 39. Right memorials for your sacrifices by the sons of Levi. Think about what we do in the temple that might be a memorial for your sacrifices by the sons of Levi. I think we can turn to the scriptures to teach our children about the temple. In the tabernacle of the Old Testament, in the holy place, right before the veil into the holy of holies, there was a table for burning incense, which everyone understood to be a symbol of prayer. I need to make my prayers sweeter. How do I make my prayers sweeter to God so that I can enter into His presence? And think about in modern temples about how we are taught to pray. Use the scriptures to teach your children about the temple and that we go into the temple to wash and to anoint and to make covenants and to receive oracles. Teach your children about the fig leaves that Adam and Eve put on when they were trying to hide themselves from God. And then the coats of skins that God put on them when they repented and confessed their mistake teach your children from the scriptures to be prepared for the covenants and the ordinances of the temple. I just wanted to point out how much there is in section 124 about the covenants and the ordinances that we perform inside the temple. Yeah. And so I want to talk briefly about verse 28. For there is not a
1: place found on earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you or that which he had taken away. Clearly, the context of this is baptism for the dead, but it's also the context of the endowment. So if you go to verse 39, about halfway through the verse, it talks about the revelations and foundation of Zion and for the glory, honor, and endowment of all her municipals. An endowment is a gift. The Greek word enduo means to put on clothing and invest or investiture or vestments All of those words in English are interrelated. And so when you are invested, you are also vested. And essentially, to me, that word endowment means gift, but it also means to put on sacred vestments. And so in the experience of the endowment, we change who we are and we do it symbolically. Like we go to the temple, we put on different clothing to represent a change
0: of station in the house of God as children of God. Which should resonate with some Book of Mormon language where we put off and we put on. Find those phrases in the Book of Mormon and take those phrases into the temple and realize that I'm changing myself by putting off and putting
1: on. And it shouldn't be strange to us as Latter-day Saints that there are sacred vestments associated with the temple and that the garment of the holy priesthood represents a tie between who I am and those covenants and God. It's kind of this glue between my nature and God's nature and an invitation to come into that through the grace of Christ. And I really do appreciate other religious traditions. Most of them have sacred vestments. And I think it's echoes of the truth that was given to Adam, that through all religious tradition, there seems to be on some level a tie to sacred vestments, or some kind of physical reminder
0: that there's something bigger than me. There's something outside of me. Way back in the Garden of Eden, Mike, when God put coats of skins on them, he put sacred clothing on them. That's how it begins, is I am receiving a sacred article of clothing from Heavenly Father that is a reminder of the covenants I've made with him.
1: Yeah. So this is January, 1841. The next year in 1842, Joseph Smith is going to initiate nine individuals and they're going to receive their endowments in the upstairs room of the Red Brick Store. I find it interesting that President Nelson in the October 2021 conference talked about this. And he talked about how Joseph Smith set up the upper room of the red brick store. You can stand where the first endowments in this dispensation were given to individuals. And later there were sisters who were initiated into these ordinances. And Joseph rolls this out gradually as the temple's being completed. You see, Joseph's killed in June of 1844 and the temple isn't totally completed yet. We're not doing the endowments in the temple yet. So Joseph writes, quote, On Wednesday the 4th, I spent the day in the upper part of the store. That is in my private office, so-called because in that room I keep my sacred writings, translate records, and receive revelation. And in my general business office or lodge room, in council with General James Adams of Springfield, Patriarch Hiram Smith, Bishop Newell K. Whitney, and George Miller, and President Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and Willard Richards, I instructed them in the principles and the order of the priesthood attending to washings, anointings, endowments, and the communication of keys pertaining to the priesthood, and so on into the highest order of the priesthood, setting forth the order pertaining to the ancient of days and all those plans and principles by which one is enabled to secure the fullness of those blessings which have been prepared for the church of the firstborn and come up and abide in the presence of Elohim in the eternal worlds. In this council was instituted the ancient order of things for the first time in these last days. At the communications I made to the council, these things were things spiritual and to be received only by the spiritually minded. And then he goes on. You can read the rest of what he wrote in his history in the show notes. But my point is a couple things. It's given line upon line. Second, and this is what President Nelson talked about in the October conference. When Joseph sets this up, He only has limited space. He doesn't have the temple built. And so the threefold ascent where we go and we ascend ritually into God's presence as laid out in modern temples, he couldn't do that. He had to kind of lay that out in the upper room of the red brick store. And then he looks to Brigham Young and he says, Brigham, this isn't perfect. This isn't exactly the way it was revealed to me, but this will suffice. And then he hands the baton to Brigham and he says, Brigham, it's up to you to make sure that this is, quote, systematized, I'm quoting President Nelson, and set forth right. And so what I see in that one statement, and I think what President Nelson is trying to emphasize, is that the president of the church, once again, has the power to decide. Section 107, verse 79. As the president of the church has the power to decide, the ordinance of the endowment and the specifics are up to the president to decide how it is to be administered. The covenant doesn't change. But the presentation of the endowment may be adapted to fit cultural situations. And so as I read the Old Testament, I see like, and we'll do this, we'll lay this out when we get to Deuteronomy, but the old Hittite treaties and the old uh, suzerain treaties of the ancient Near East is literally the endowment. Like it's kind of mind-blowing when you look at the way the ancient cultures did treaties. We see this in the endowment, but the presentation of the
0: endowment over time under the direction of the prophet may change. And it has. And one of those reasons that sometimes people don't realize is that as we translate the endowment into other languages, certain phrases don't translate well. That was not a concern in Joseph's day. But that is a concern to President Nelson, where we're translating the endowment into multiple languages. So we may need to make an adjustment so that the translation is right. So that the covenant, which doesn't change, is understood by the way we present it today. It's so interesting how he lays it out in the upper room of this red brick store. Now,
1: I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm not in Joseph's head, but I can kind of see the way things are moving in Nauvoo that maybe Joseph has in his mind, maybe I'm not going to be here. I mean, he, there are several times in his life where he says, you know, my, my time on earth may be cut short. So I I kind of look at this red brick store experience, Bryce, as kind of another baptizing in the Mississippi River experience. We're doing what we can with what we have. Do you see that?
0: Yep, it's such a insight. Again, it's an insight into God's character. You do what you can with what you have, and then as your circumstances changes, I'll require more of you. That's Heavenly Father. Now. As you read section 124, you're going to see a whole lot of emphasis given to the other house they were commanded to build. They were commanded to build a temple, but the other house that gets almost a little more attention than the temple in this revelation is a boarding house called the Nauvoo house. And the Lord gives an unusual amount of attention to the Nauvoo house in this revelation. That's what catches my attention. When the Lord says, okay, here's the number of verses he talks about the temple, and then to count the number of verses he's referring to the Nauvoo house is an anomaly. Why so much emphasis on a boarding house? And now the Lord is saying, I command you to build a house. Now listen to his description in verse 23. A house for boarding. A house that strangers may come from afar, To lodge therein. Let it be a good house, worthy of all acceptation, that the weary traveler may find health and safety while he shall contemplate the word of the Lord. He calls it in verse 24 a healthful habitation. Do you see maybe a symbol here of our personal lives? And to be a little bit more welcoming to strangers, to give strangers lodging where they can be safe and healthy while they investigate and contemplate. Maybe some of the reasons that the conflict occurred in Missouri was this exclusionary spirit that says, we don't want you around us.
1: I like that, Bryce, because I think these verses are inviting the saints not to be
0: clickish. Yes. Now think about your personal social media behavior. Think about some of the social media behavior you've seen other Latter-day Saints have as they push the weary stranger away. The Lord says, I want the weary traveler to find health and safety when they're with you. Now, he calls upon them to put stock in this building. I want everyone to invest a considerable minimal effort in making the stranger feel welcome in Nauvoo. The other part of this is no one could pay less than $50. So when you're buying stock, when you set a minimum price, you're kind of limiting the number of people who can buy it. Because if I'm poor and I can't afford a $50 purchase of stock, I'm out. And I think what he's trying to say is, yes, you need to actually commit a great deal on the minimum effort to buy into this stock. But he also sets a maximum so that one wealthy person can't come in and buy up all the stock. And then when the stock raises in value, that one person earns the investment. He earns the proceeds because I was able to buy them up. The Lord is simply saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to give you a maximum so that many people are able to buy stock in this house. This is a big deal. It's something that we all need to do. But it needs to be a sizable investment. Now, as I read social media, as I look out, there are very rarely welcoming, safe places. We as a church, I individually need to do better at building this boarding house, whether it's in my actual home or in my classroom or in my work, or whether it's me riding on the train or at the grocery store. The spirit of what the Lord is trying to say here is: every Latter Day Saint needs to significantly invest in a safe, healthy place for the strangers to lodge. Let me illustrate in the Book of Mormon. Do you remember where Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni split up to go preach the gospel to the Lamanites? Ammon drew Lamoni's kingdom, was thrown in prison appears before Lamoni with the attitude of service. Lamoni says to him, what's your desire here? What's your purpose? And he says, I desire to dwell among you. Even until I die, I want to be your servant. Even when he chopped off the arms And they report back to Lamoni, well, where is this guy? Where is this man of great strength? Oh, he's getting the chariot ready for your dad's party. He's serving you. And Lamoni says, I've never had a more faithful servant. He wins Lamoni's heart out of service. Now, think about when does the gospel come up in their conversation? When do Lamoni and Ammon have a church-related gospel conversation? It's after Lamoni's heart has been won through Ammon's love and service. In chapter 20 of Alma, he does it again with Lamoni's dad. Lamoni's dad is upset that Lamoni is hanging out with a Nephite and tries to kill his own son. Then Ammon defends him. And then he ends up getting the king of all the land at the end of his sword and pleading for his life. And all he wants is that Lamoni not be punished and that his brothers come out of prison. And when the king of all the land, when Lamoni's father sees the love that Ammon has for Lamoni, he's changed. And again, no gospel conversation yet. Simply love and kindness and service. Now contrast that with chapter 21 and Aaron. Verse 4, Aaron goes into the city of Jerusalem among the Lamanites and, quote, first began to preach. He went in preaching, and the reaction was in verse 5, contention. When we go in preaching, it breeds contention. Aaron responds to the contention, verse 9, by pulling out his scriptures. And in verse 10, they get angry, they mock, and they will not hear. When we go in with love and kindness and service, it wins hearts. Now, does Aaron learn his lesson? Yes. Go to chapter 22, when Aaron was sent to Lamoni's father, the king of all the land. He says in verse 3, O king, if thou wilt spare our lives, we will be thy servants. Did Aaron learn from Ammon? And have we learned that when we go in and we create a boarding house where the stranger feels safe and healthy to investigate, to ask questions, to contemplate the restoration of the gospel, I am safe and healthy in your presence, we win hearts. We've got to do that better. Yeah.
1: The lack of civility is definitely a problem today, and the boarding house can be a metaphor for our lives. Bryce, I love that. I love that metaphor. Now, there's this scourge that is referenced in this section, and it's verse 83. And the Lord says, concerning William Law in verse 82, In verse 83, it says, If he, William Law, will do my will, let him not take his family to the eastern lands, even to Kirtland. Nevertheless, I, Lord, will build up Kirtland, but I, the Lord, have his scourge prepared for the inhabitants of Kirtland. And the question is, well, what is that? It's difficult, really, to tell what the scourge was. So Hiram Smith, writing from Nauvoo as the patriarch of the church, told the saints that while they had been driven out of their houses and lands at Kirtland, Hiram wrote, quote, Yet your children may possess them, but not until many years have passed away. End Curland declined in population and wealth by 1890, where only 909 individuals lived there. And so maybe that's the scourge. Maybe the fact that the saints left. And it just kind of dwindled in population. We're going to see some of that with Nauvoo as the saints leave Nauvoo. Now, right here, historically in the early 1840s, Nauvoo is going to rival Chicago as the biggest city in Illinois. And politically, it's going to attract a lot of people who want to come and curry favor with the vote of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so this scourge may just have to do with the decline of population. But what is important, at least to me, is in 1979, President Benson, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, presided over a groundbreaking for a new chapel in Kirtland, Ohio. And during this address, he removed the scourge that had been placed on Kirtland. And so since that time, a stake has been organized, and the church has continued to grow. And so big picture, I don't think there's a scourge there now, but maybe, like I said, maybe it's coming from the fact that the saints left.
0: Now, let's throw in the gift. I love verse 123 as an attitude as to why we have priesthood leaders. The Lord says in verse 123, I now give unto you the officers belonging to my priesthood. I give unto you the officers. They are gifts. Now, listen to the language. Verse 124, I give unto you a patriarch. Your patriarch is a gift from God. Verse 125, I give unto you the president of the church. He's a gift. Verse 26, I give unto him counselors. Counselors are God's gift to the president. Verse 127, I give unto you a president of the 12 apostles. The quorum of the 12 is a gift from God. Verse 131, I give unto you a high council. And even as we're organized today, the stake high council is a gift to the church. Verse 133, I give unto you a president over a quorum of high priests. We call that a stake president. Your stake president is God's gift to you. Verse 136, I give unto him counselors. Verse 137, I give unto you the elders quorum president. Your elders quorum president is God's gift to you. Now, the elders quorum president shouldn't feel like God's gift to you. But I need to feel like he is my gift from God. And I think culturally in our language,
1: we read these things and sometimes we say, Oh, when Eve is given to Adam, that she's some kind of possession, but that's not the context of this. It's a gift. And I don't think that's how the Lord uses it, but in our culture... We sometimes hear, oh, Eve is given to Adam, and we think that somehow she is to be subjugated. And that's not anywhere near what the language is trying to express. Exactly. So I find this really interesting how the
0: Lord uses it versus how it's used in our common speech. Exactly. Look at verse 138 I give unto you the presidents of the quorum of the 70s. Verse 134 I give unto you a bishopric. And then he includes in 142 priests. I assume that he would mean by the first assistant and the second assistant in our culture, the president of the teachers and his counselors, the president of the deacons and his counselors. And then verse 143, the above officers I have given unto you and the keys thereof. Why? Verse 143, for helps and for governments and for the work of the ministry and the perfecting of my saints. Neil A. Maxwell said when he became an apostle that he took his calling as invitation, not commendation. May I invite everyone that holds a position in the church, act like you have been given from God to bless people's lives. I want to be a gift in your life. I love how he speaks of the stake president in verse 134. He says, Which ordinance is instituted for the purpose of qualifying those who shall be appointed standing presidents or servants over the different stakes scattered abroad? He calls a stake president, a stake servant. And if every stake president would Remember that my job is to be a blessing unto you and to be your servant. I think we would better be the very people that the Lord is talking about as my gift to you. I like that even for as a father,
1: as a teacher, whatever our calling, we can be a blessing to people. Yeah. And so with that, we thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing your time with us this week as we've talked about section 124. And we will see you next week when we cover sections 125 through 128. Have a great week.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.